Well, um, I guess we'll make a little transition here. We're going to go in the fast few minutes we have. Can we go to Matthew chapter 1? We'll just uh, wrap up our, our study together. <coughs> Thinking about the Christmas time and how it means so many different things to so many different people. With the, the season rushing down upon us, there's a, there's a clear, uh, I, can, I can, it's almost palpable, I can sense that there's a sense of dread <laughs> in most of us that it's coming. And whether you're ready or not, it's going to hit us like a freight train. The Christmas season's coming. Uh, so I don't want that to, to overwhelm you. I, I really want you to be thinking in terms of uh, how can I fix my heart, my mind, on what God's fixed upon, what he's fixated with, and uh, the, cent- the central essence of what Christmas is all about. And I know you know this story so well. Um, but I, I chose to call this a thrill of hope. This mini-series is just a short um, look at the genealogies of Matthew chapter 1. Some of you may be joining us here now at the end of uh, three messages, so you may have a little disorientation feeling here. So I'm just going to give a quick orientation of what's going on here. We chose this title because of the, that beautiful lyric in that song, O Holy Night. Um, it captures the shock and brilliance of the angelic news of the Messiah's birth. I love that in that lyric where it says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. And a, a, wor- a weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks this new and glorious morn. Do you understand? I'm sure you, you must have some sense for the significance of the birth, the incarnation of God made flesh. I mean, it is his birth birthed a new era of time for all human history. The first Christmas was an event of such magnitude that it actually rifted time. It is so immediate, it is so immensely significant that we are literally counting the days since that happened. Uh, every time we write a check or write a calendar, we don't write checks anymore, we write uh, dates down, <laughs> we write anything that we earmark or date, date stamp anything, it's a, re- it's a reference to the day in which God incarnate, God became flesh, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. With the birth of Christ came a new and glorious dawn of a new era. The world has never been the same since. Almost all births, you, would, you could argue, are significant. Uh, they're life-changing. I know the births of our children were absolutely <laughs> life-changing for me. They were filled with joy. We'd look at every birth and just think, this is such a, a wonderfully miraculous event. The possibilities of the future of that little one are just ever in your heart and mind, thinking about what God might be doing through that life. And you just rejoice. But this, this birth was exponentially different from all the others that came before or since. The Bible is full of significant births. In fact, uh, it'd be hard to imagine the Bible, the narrative of the Bible, carrying along in the same way without all the tension that's created around significant and consequential births. You can think through the Bible from the starting of the book, from Genesis. You think about Adam and Eve and, that, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the, con- the consequence of that first birth with Cain. You know, Eve was Eve actually named her son Cain, saying, I've gotten a man-child from the Lord, thinking that perhaps that she was receiving the, the one, the, the promised seed of the woman that would be the head crusher. She thought that he was going to be the one, perhaps that would be the, the salvation and deliverance for her and her husband. What a disappointment that must have been to find Cain be a murderer of his own brother. Then there's the significant consequential birth of Abraham and, to Abraham and Sarah. 
the strife brought about by the because they were both wavering in their faith. Uh, they still yet had to be tested for their faith in the biological heir of the promise. And that was tested several times. And yet the whole Bible narrative is tracking along with there's an expectation of some birth that's going to bring a change, a significant, a significant trans, uh, transition in, in the narrative here. Isaac and Rebekah had a rivalry in the, in the womb of Rebekah. Remember? Uh, with um, Jacob and Esau. The manipulation and con artistry in that passage is just classic. It was just a riveting story about how they manipulated each other to try to move um, towards uh, belief in the promise of God. Judah and Tamar, another consequential birth. Judah failed to, he denied Tamar the, the leveret marriage custom and left her destitute without an heir. So she manipulated the situation to lure her father-in-law to an illicit encounter then results in her having twins. Those twins are mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, Perez and Zerah. Then there was the Hebrew women in bondage. We know that the births there were a central feature of that whole account, right? They're pitching Hebrew babies into the Nile River. And this is all jeopardizing the plan of God to bring about his heir, his, his, his son to this earth. All of this narrative, the Bible doesn't just tell you one story and then isolates a different story and tells you this anthology of different short stories. It's a one single narrative that's overarching the entire Bible. And every one of these stories is showing you how God was overcoming massive resistance to bring about his son to this earth. It's, if you think about the Bible as a, con, a, a continuity rather than an isolated series of stories, you begin to see just what the Lord did to bring his son to this earth. You have, of course, Boaz and Ruth, Malon, Ruth's first husband, passes away without, without leaving her with an heir. She's destitute. She has to glean in the fields. She's trying to make things happen. And Boaz becomes the redeeming kinsman. His lineage leads to the house of David. That's significant because Boaz's redeeming of Ruth happens in the public of the town of Bethlehem. And there, Boaz establishes the line of David's lineage. The lineage hometown is Bethlehem, where David will be born. And then Micah will later say that's where the Messiah is going to come from. So all of these stories share very common. I mean, they're, they're sharing a body of truth here that we, we, we now arrive in Matthew chapter 1 and see all these loose ends and these little pieces of extrapolation data that's kind of coming into perfect, um, perfect view together. And so as, as we recall this list, you have to wonder how many times did the Lord sovereignly intervene in the circumstances, in the situations, the mindsets, all the outcomes, the, the willingness of people's hearts or the unwillingness of their hearts may, may be to bring to pass everything so that the birth of the Messiah could actually take place. You, you consider it. It's at every turn of the page of, the, of your Bible almost. You see the Lord working determinedly determinatively to bring his son into the cosmos despite the most impossible situations. For 4,000 years, God met the constant resistance to his birth with painstaking patience and wisdom and grace and mercy. Despite all the murders, the deceit, the sexual immorality, the tragedies, the unfaithfulness, the wars, the captivity, God still brought all his sovereign will to pass in perfect accordance with his word. And that's why Matthew 1 is so intriguing. It's a record of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David. 
the son of Abraham. So you might wonder why a genealogy like this is important. And I mentioned to you, number one, it's important because, number one, it's revelation. It's from God. It's no less inspired here than it is in John 3.16 or some of the other more precious, treasured passages. Because it comes from God, it is profitable for us, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We'd be no better than the Bible deniers, cults, or theological liberals if we, didn't, if we ignored this passage, any, others, any more than they do. So it's important for Revelation. It's important because it shows the relationships. It, it's bringing together all these isolated narratives so that you've heard from your youth. In many cases, some of you grew up in church, you heard story after story after story and didn't see how they all tied together in one continuous narrative. Matthew 1 brings the picture together and gives you that, that first, like, shot of like this is what god's doing over the arc of history it's it's a beautiful thing it shows the continuity of a promise god made to abraham that was being fulfilled that god made to david it's being continued to be fulfilled it shows the identity and historicity of these people it shows how their identity is wrapped up not in their individual identity but in a community of identity with with the community of faith people who are believing the promise or in many cases, not believing that promise. And it all relates them to that. And it shows that we're dealing with historical people. We're not, we're not, that's one thing unique about Christianity. We're not talking about an abstract religion that deals with philosophical ideas. We're talking about a, a, a faith, a religion. Christianity is rooted in history, real actual human beings, real actual people that took place in real time space. These are real things that happened. They're not just ideas which puts them out before people for a real, it puts it out for them for consideration. It's a serious religion. It's a serious faith because it makes claims in history that can be proven or disproven. And so it shows the relationships. It shows reliance, reliance upon grace and covenant. In, in, the, in this passage, another thing I thought about with, when I was thinking about this is that these individuals don't stand in isolation. They owe this promise to something that happened before their birth. They owe everything they have, their identity, everything that they, uh, uh, that they have inherited, all that they have to hope in is given to them by virtue of connection to something that was done for them before they had any ability to participate in it, in a covenant. So that, that's beautiful. When you think about their reliance, it's not upon their individual uh, self-reliance. It's upon their reliance upon the of God of the covenant to keep his promises. They're so hope-filled on God fulfilling his obligations to them and they, they are not um, wrapped up in their own obligations. There's also, there's relevance. I like 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that every word of God is given by inspiration. Of, by give, give inspiration, it's God-breathed. And it is profitable. It's profitable. And because it's profitable, it's relevant. So I think about this relevance idea. Matthew 1, I, call the, I, I like to call it the, the labor and delivery unit of the Bible. With all these births, there are babies everywhere in this, in this chapter. And here we are standing in the neonatal nurse, nursery, beholding all the babies. And we're trying to figure out which one belongs to us. Okay? I mean, we probably would never admit this, but we would never at least do it out loud. But we could care less about all the other babies in the nursery. Deep down, we really only feel that special affinity, that filial bond, and that heart connection with that one that is our own flesh and blood. So we quickly scan past all the unfamiliar faces, trying to spot ours from behind the viewing glass of what I call the big baby zoo. Okay, you're just looking there, looking for your one child, right? 
And this is how Christians treat Matthew 1. Okay? We're only interested in the one with whom we feel that particular uh, bond, that familiarity. And we scan past the 41 other names in this passage because we don't feel any particular obligation to even notice them. They don't hold any particular significance for us and they, because they seem unrelated. But just then you start to realize something's not right, something's not normal, I should say, in this nursery. All of a sudden you realize that all the babies in this nursery share a common connection. They share a lineage and a parentage. They're all part of the same bloodline. They all share a family name. And then you realize that that family name is yours. Now, you've been thinking this whole time there's only one in that nursery that means anything to you. You don't realize that every name in that nursery belongs to you in some way. Every individual mention is the lineal record connected to Jesus. These are ones with whom Jesus is associated. And if you let your attention linger a little bit, just fixate a little longer on them, you'll find that you also have a connection with them as well. You'll find among this list Jews and Gentiles. You'll find con men and women. You'll find outsiders and backsliders, faithful and faithless, the hard-hearted and the broken-hearted alike are in this passage. So as we look at this together, in our time, I don't have a lot of time to go through the structure, but the the structure of the passage gives away why Matthew included this. If you look at this, verse 17, actually this is verse, yeah, this is, says Matthew 1, but I should say verse 17. Look down here with me, and it says this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So Matthew took some time to structure this genealogy for a purpose. And he did it by breaking them down into 14 generations each. I'm going to show that to you in just a minute. Why 14? Why not 114? I don't know. He could have shown every person that ever existed in this line, but he chose 14 individual ones. Some, some have noticed that in the Hebrew, David, the word David actually is comprised of three letters, the trilateral roots here in all of in Hebrew, the, the Dalit and the Vav and the Dalit, they are the fourth and sixth and the fourth letter of the alphabet, <coughs> alphabet in Hebrew, and they would often use the alphabet to count their numbers. So, And if you add those numbers together, you get 14. Fascinating, actually, if you think about it. So 14 happens to be a great mnemonic device to help people recall the, the lineage of, of, of Jesus, the Messiah. And these 14 names break down under certain leaders of that of that era if you think about it if you read carefully you'll see abraham's mentioned twice david's mentioned twice jeconiah's mentioned twice these guys become the heads of the list of 14 this structure indicates that god is doing something through three distinct eras of hebrew history okay and namely we would we would think back abraham of course would be a natural head of, of, of a covenant time period where, of course, we looked at that last week. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David. That's what verse 17 just told us. Abraham was, of course, the one who was promised of God that he would receive an heir. And not just the one who's in his house, Eleazar the ser- servant. No, this is someone who, according to Genesis 15:4, would come from his own body. Genesis 17, 6 through 7, he was told, Abraham was told, by God, I will make thee exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of thee, 
and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between thee and thy seed after thee in the generations for an everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant means this is a promise God did not intend to terminate or annul at any point. This continues to this day. In fact, if you don't, if you don't understand that in Genesis 17, you can't interpret the rest of your Bible right correctly throughout the rest of the Bible. So you need to start in Genesis and really understand what promises were being made and how is God determined to fulfill these things. In fact, he says, I'm going to give you nations. I'm going to give you, nations are going to come out of you. I made this promise between you and thy seed. And he goes on to say here in Genesis 17, 16, he says, oh yeah, just so you're clear, I will bless her. Sarah, he's speaking of here. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Very specific. And I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. That's the second time he's mentioned kings coming from Sarah. Kings coming from Abraham. Uh, Genesis 17, 9. God says, you will call his name Isaac. It's very clear. God is funneling the covenant promise through a particular heir by name through his wife, Sarah. Abraham had many other children, but God has extended this, this promise that is an inheritance to Isaac. It carries forward. Isaac is then in Genesis chapter 26. If you're reading along, if you're reading your Bible just chronologically, Isaac soon um, met by the Lord in Genesis 26, verses 24 through 25, where the Lord says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you, multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So the Lord is clearly indicating he's reaffirming this covenant. All right, I made that promise to Abraham. I'm making it to you, Isaac. I'm going to bless you, give you the same greatness, the promise of nations, the promise of descendants and land and kings. He says here in Genesis chapter 27, listen to this language. Now, may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and the abundance of the grain and new wine. Listen, may peoples serve you. And nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now, this bow down language is clearly royal language. We're talking about someone paying homage and honor to, to the Isaac as a ruler of a people. His descendants will be rulers. Okay? So, if you see the king language used here. It's not going to surprise you later when you see this king theme revisited by every one of these names. They are, they are promised a kingly heir. Jacob is then passed along. Jacob goes, you remember the story of Jacob's ladder? He's at the running from his brother Esau. He collapses in the wilderness, falls down, tired, exhausted, and the Lord meets him in a vision that night. Angels are descending up and down on a ladder, and the Lord says to him, um, reaffirms the promise that he was given to his father Abraham and given to his, uh, his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac and tells him, you're going to receive the land, the seed, and the blessings. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I will, not, I will not depart from you until I make this happen, God says to him. And notice he says here in Genesis uh, 35, 11, God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations will come from you, Jacob, and kings shall come forth from you. So Jacob expected anticipated a king. We see later on that um, we see later on that out of Jacob, he'd marry four. Well, not marry four, but he had four wives or four women who were birthing his family. Crazy story, um, but uh, nonetheless, Lord used it to raise up the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Out of that comes a fourth-born son from Leah named Judah. Now, it says here in Judah, uh, Genesis 29, 35, And Leah, she conceived again and bore a son. This time, she says, I will praise the Lord. Remember, she, her heart was to, to, have, to please her husband. She couldn't seem to please him. She says, I want to praise the Lord. I want to give praise to God. So she named her son Judah, which means praise. Um, it means celebration. And then she stopped bearing after that. At the end of Jacob's life, Jacob gave a blessing to Judah, this fourth-born son. And he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. That's a wonderful play on the name of Judah, isn't it? You're going to be a blessing. You're going to be praised. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. There's that <laughs> royal language again. You're going to be the ruler. Where your brothers will bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. What a curious phrase. That must have just sat in the craw of these, these Hebrew Israelites. Just thinking, Shiloh, what's Shiloh? What's Shiloh? I got to know what that's all about. Who's Shiloh and who, when's he coming? Okay. This is a reference. This is an early messianic reference. To the one who would come, who'd be the ruler, who would never de- the, the the scepter would never depart from his house. He'd be a this have to be a kind of guy who would be an everlasting kind of person, somebody who couldn't die. Okay, that's this is all wrapped up into this. I'm sure this had fodder for a lot of a lot of reflection. Okay, Numbers twenty four seventeen through nineteen. Balaam makes a prediction. Listen to this. He says, "I see him. Who's him?" Keep reading. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. There's that scepter language. One from Jacob shall have dominion. So this is all in the hopes and dreams and aspirations of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Judah becomes the heir. Judah fails to give his daughter-in-law, Tamar, an heir. So Tamar, um, Tamar gives uh, up through an illicit situation, creates an opportunity for her to come to conceive by her father-in-law. Horrible situation here, but the Lord redeems this even in this situation. Genesis chapter 38, it says that uh, Tamar conceives, she bears forth uh, Perez and Zerah. What a breach you have made for yourself, says the midwife who gives birth to Perez. What an f- interesting story that is. Well, don't have time to look at it right now. But a breach is a bursting forth, something growing, something exploding into existence here. Perez becomes the heir of, uh, of the covenant promise. And soon after that, they go into um, the Exodus bondage. Remember, or It's not Exodus, it's the bondage. The Exodus will be when they leave. But uh, Boaz is then told, Boaz, if you go forward to Ruth, chapter 4, Ruth, chapter 4, shows us that Boaz descends from the line of Perez. In fact, Matthew is drawing his chronologies right from the pages in the annals of the Old Testament. So there isn't anything that's incongruent here. But um, Boaz says, I've, I've taken Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech. I've gathered, I've taken Ruth as my wife. I will raise up seed upon the name of the deceased. The name of the deceased will be not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. The interest that Boaz here is 
I'm going to restore the family. I'm going to keep the inheritance in the family line. And this will be the family birthplace. And he says that standing in the center streets of Bethlehem. Okay? This is staging for something big, right? Okay, so you've already seen stars, you've seen scepters, you've seen kings, you've seen the promise of a hope passed along from generation to generation, and we, now we see it all come home to the Bethlehem area in Boaz. Okay, there's Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Aminadab, these are all guys who ruled, these guys are all, not ruled, but they were prospective heirs of the covenant throughout the Exodus time period, they were in bondage. In fact, Aminadab's name actually means people of liberality. Perhaps it was during Aminadab's time that the Exodus took place. Then we come and encounter here Salmon, marries Rahab. We know Rahab's story. Rahab uh, marries uh, Salmon. And it says in Joshua chapter 6, 25, Rahab the harlot in her father's household. And all that she had, Joshua spared. And And she lived in the midst of Israel to this day. She was spared because of her faith in the promise of God to keep her alive. Out of Rahab came, it says here, out of Rahab, um, we see came Boaz. Boaz was the son of Rahab. Boaz gave birth to a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's the quote from Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. That brings us to David. David, of course, received as the head of another covenant given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David was told that God would make his name great that God would give him rest from his enemies. Again, remember Judah was the one that was going to have the hand on the throat of his enemies. Judah, David is hailing from Judah. David is the prototype of this messianic figure who's going to put the people to rest, keep, keep rest for his people by a great military might. He will be the king, the hope, the king of hosts. Okay? The Lord will make a house for you, the Bible says in chapter seven, Second Samuel 7, verse 11. And I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and will, I will establish his kingdom. Not only will I establish his kingdom, God elaborates and says, I'm going to do this forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Okay, this is just, this is wild, man. I mean, think about this. He says, I'm going to take this, this descendant of yours, David, I'm going to be uniquely his father. He's going to be uniquely a son to me. This is, this is, they could only dream to what that meant. Of course, they would have assumed that this meant the king would just be a, a favored one among the people. But God meant it very literally. His own son was going to be the one with whose kingdom would be established. This all sounds like New Testament stuff to us. When we read the pages of the New Testament, we see Christ shows up on the, on the stage of history declaring the kingdom of God's at hand presenting himself as the king, the son of God, the son of man. I mean, this is fantastic stuff. I mean, you, your, the pages of your Old Testament will burst alive when you start reading things in light of this covenant as it, um, an heir to all these people. Now, quickly, I'm just going to skirt through these last few names because you, you have a chance to read this in your own. Second, second, first and second kings and then are all listed here. Solomon is given a charge by David. David says, I've been given a, a promise of God. Solomon, you promise, you walk in the ways of your, uh, uh, that you've been instructed. You walk in the ways of the Lord before him all the days of your life, and there'll never be a man lacking from the throne of Judah, lacking from uh, a man from the throne of Jerusalem. Solomon receives this, and then is also reaffirmed by the Lord himself coming to him in 1 Kings 6, 11. God says, if you walk with me, 
I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. This is how the whole Old Testament stages up. Solomon, if you're faithful, there'll be, a, there'll be an heir. At the end of Solomon's life, Solomon, of course, apostatizes. And the Bible says he tear, God will tear the kingdom from Solomon. Tragic story, but it looks like Saul's reign 2.0. Okay? God tears the kingdom away from um, Solomon, gives it to Jeroboam. And Solomon's single son, Rehoboam, now rules over one measly little tribe. And the sequence of succession of kings thereafter, many of them are failures and disappointments. And Jesus ends at the long line of, Jesus' name appears at the list, at the end of the list of a long line of disappointments. One after another, after another, after another. With each birth of a child, you wonder, is this this where the hopes of humanity lie? I'm hopeless, I'm I'm not hopeful as I read through these kings, ending with Jeconiah. Jeconiah, of course, had a curse placed on him. Jeremiah, the prophet, said to him, write this man childless. There'll never again be a, name, a man from his line to sit on the throne of his father, David. So we're reading down through this list. We encounter Jeconiah's name. Then verse 11, we go down further. It talks about the deportation to Babylon. Massive dark age for the Hebrew people. Uh, these names that are given here in this last section between 12 and 14, very little is known about them. They seem to appear to come from a family genealogical record. That's not in any of the, it's extra biblical, it's not non-canonical, but nonetheless, we, we, we believe that this is the case. It comes down, we see that Jacob, or sorry, Joseph hails from the, the line of Jeconiah. That's a problem. Since Jeconiah was cursed and none of his seed are eligible to rule, what do we do with Jacob? What do we do with Joseph? Joseph could not have fathered Jesus because in order to do that, Jesus would have been in a, in a cursed line of kings. So this really points out a serious crisis in the end of the, in the chapter one. But it's beautifully avoided in Matthew because you'll see at the end, Matthew uses extra language to show us that it was not Joseph who actually fathered Jesus. That it, Joseph just gives Jesus the right to rule without actually becoming he's, he's a legally he's legally rightful in ruling however he cannot be the heir if he was a biological son of Jeconiah Mary by the way provides that provides that lineage to, to David that is free of the curse and that's why it's mentioned here verse 16 Jacob was the father of Joseph the husband of Mary Mary's mentioned by whom and the whom refers to Mary by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah and that is very clear that the Bible's escaping that that crisis that happens in that situation so with all of that said you read this whole list of begats I'm all out of time but aren't you left wondering after you read all these begats he begat him he begat him he begat him aren't you wondering who did Jesus beget (laughs) I kind of think about that of course, he didn't beget biological children. He didn't, he didn't have that. But he does, indeed, there are people born into the family of God through the relationship and connection with Jesus Christ. I hope that you um, know him and have entered into that relationship with him by trusting and belief in Christ as Savior and Messiah and King. That's what Christmas is all about. You can't really appreciate the Christmas season without the connection to this long promise of God that he's been bringing to earth 
despite the challenging times. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this together. I know we went a little extra long today, but Lord, help us as we reminisce upon this. Help us to, to um, just have our hearts filled overflowing and be thrilled with the hope that is the Messiah. We pray that you bless our time as we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks for the extra time, guys. God bless. Have a great Christmas.